Hello everyone and welcome back to the 16mm Film Crew. I'm Cindy. And I'm Dale. You can watch us on YouTube. You can like and comment on our YouTube videos and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can support us on Anchor. You can listen to us everywhere podcasts are found at 16mm Film Crew Podcasts. Leave us a rate and review. And visit us on our website at www.16millimeterfilmcrew.com. So this week we are talking about Marvel's Secret Invasion. Here's your synopsis. Nick Fury learns of a secret invasion of Earth by a fraction of shape-shifting scrolls. Fury joins his allies and together they race against time to thwart an imminent scroll invasion and save humanity. This show stars Samuel L. Jackson, Ben Mendelsohn, Kingsley Benadire, Dermot Mulroney, Amelia Clark, Olivia Coleman, and Don Cheadle. And it is directed by Kyle Bradstreet. So, Dale, thoughts on this new Mar- Marvel offering, <laughs> shall we say? Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh. I don't know. I I think I enjoyed it a lot. Um. Some there's some nitpicky things I have that, but you know that's typical. You know, if you're a comic book fan or you actually you you kind they're kind of stuff and elements you want to see that aren't um being showcased. I know particularly for me it was discovery of um that um Marvel was like, yeah, we don't want anybody who actually reading the Secret Invasion comic book like arc. Um because once I heard that and I was like, okay, they're completely gonna deviate a bit from it because in the comic book it's mostly them discovering that superheroes have been replaced. And you kinda can't do that when he only introduced like eight heroes <laughs> and you kill half of them in the last movie. So yeah. Um which is kind of interesting because Kevin Feige was the same one when Brian Singer was doing all those X-Men movies, you know, forcing the cast behind the scenes to like read the comic books. So, but it is what it is. Um, I love like, I don't know. I don't know what to expect going forward from the rest of it, but I, I do think this movie kind of, or what they have so far is kind of more in line with, um, what the Russos did before with, um, Captain America, uh, the whole sp- espionage, esque side of Marvel, which doesn't they don't really showcase that much in their properties. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I was excited for this show because I was like, it's gonna be more serious, it's gonna be a little bit darker, and it's gonna focus on the spy thriller thing that I think most of Marvel lovers love from Captain America, Civil War. Um and I, I don't know. I didn't watch the Falcon and Winter Soldier show, so I don't know if that's if this was something an idea that they also played with in that show. I'm not too sure, but um, I was excited about this. This stuff was like set up in Captain Marvel, which is a movie I really was not into, so I don't remember like a whole lot about the situation here. But I think from what I do remember, the scrolls were gonna well. Nick Fury and Captain Marvel was supposed to find them a new home and they didn't do that in the many years that they've had on Earth. <laughs> I guess they've been dealing with other stuff. I'm not sure. Um, so now they're like, the scrolls are rebelling and they want to create their own Earth. But instead of like finding a new place to live, they're just going to take over this planet. <laughs> so I guess that's their plan. Um, what I find interesting is that like, because the scrolls can shape shift and be anyone, That means that technically they could be any of our heroes or people that we've known in this universe. 
and it could have been them for a long time. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Obviously, it's only episode one, so like we don't know what's gonna happen. But I will be—I am interested to see like how they systematically kind of climb the um, the chain or the ladder of command to. I guess what I heard is that taking over the president or the president is supposed to be a scroll or something of that sort. I'm like listening to theories. I'm not even sure if this is real, but (laughs) from what I can recall, like that's what they want to do. Like they want total like world domination. So I'm interested to see how this plays out. I actually liked the first episode. I thought it was pretty good. I I, I think that my issue with Marvel and that I I don't think that's ever going to change is the dialogue and never... The writing always feels like it's almost there, but it's like, uh, it's like, I don't Something know. Something is holding it back. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Something is holding it back. It's like riding a bicycle with training wheels. Like, that's what it feels like. Um, so even though they have these amazing performers, like, and really cool characters, interesting plots, I just feel like they're not going to go as dark as it can go with it just because it's still a marvel property yeah yeah like like in the like the first 15 minutes when like um don Cheadle, you know james rose war machine is i guess he's now like up in like white house kind of property and he's walking with the president um dermont maroney and he's like yeah we can't find nick Fury or maria hill oh the guy who's director of shield yeah, we can't find him. Oh, he's AWOL now. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, you know this guy is, like, your top, top super secret spy. He's in charge of your whole, you know, defense global apparatus. And he, you can't contact him once. And he's also an AWOL. I'd be, like, knowing how the amount of shit that's happened in the Marvel Universe and I'm present. And you find out, oh, we can't contact Nick Fury. We don't know where he is. In my head, I'm like, oh, shit's about to go down. Like, mm-hmm. you know, but they're like, oh, you got to track him down. He's abandoned his post. He's AWOL. So I was like, that doesn't really make any sense. So <laughs> especially coming from like, like James Rhodes, who literally fought like in Endgame and all the other bullshit. He knows, you know, Fury, if we can't contact Fury, serious shit's about to happen. So that exchange in the beginning really didn't make it any real sense for me. I think they just wanted, they had that bit of dialogue there just to like, ramp up tension for like no real reason like i could understand if that scene had taken place after the bombing at the end of episode one um because you do see the leader of the scrolls paid by um kingsley benadir um he shapeshifts into fury and shoots maria mm-hmm. so you know i'm thinking okay there might be footage that gets out of fury shooting her and then you could say fury's a wall you know so mm-hmm. if they had like swapped out a little bit i think that would have made more sense to me in my my head yeah and that's a good point because i feel like now they have like more of an incentive to really like go after him because more because in the beginning it was more just like oh where is he we don't know but like he's an old man so whatever like people were just like who cares he's old mm-hmm. he has a limp and it's like isn't he still like one of the most like intelligent people <laughs> that you guys have um but it definitely seemed like what they were trying to show is that like the events of endgame and infinity war like broke him so he yeah. is i guess 
he's so used to being to, to knowing everything that he doesn't know anything now and it's like yeah that's fair like none of us do like nobody does but like you still gotta you still have to put something together because there are other threats out there so him just like chilling in space did make sense to me i was just like you know there's other things going on like <laughs> what's happening here yeah, especially considering, for some reason, at the end of, um, was it the Eternals? Their end credit mm-hmm. scene has him getting out of the, his chair in space, or pretending to be on the beach, and it reveals him on a, a, a space station. So to me, that doesn't seem like a Fury who's actually, like, that has, like, lost a step. Because as soon as someone knocks on the door, he's instantly, like, up, ready for action. And then mm. we go to Marvel now. He's like, oh, Fury, you seem unsure of yourself. Something happened with Infinity War. When timeline-wise, all the stuff in Eternals happened right after Infinity War. So the yeah, drastic shift in characterization in that like one, like two to three second clip to now doesn't really match, you know? Yeah. I think that's the issue with trying to like connect all of these stories together. It's like you have to remember the continuity of like where your characters were at at this yeah. point <laughs> and where they are now. So anyways, I guess, I guess he's out of retirement now and he is ready to fight to save the scrolls or at least some of them and keep some of them safe and not have Olivia Coleman, like wipe them out in like a genocide type <laughs> situation, <laughs> which is like, Oh, okay. That's dark. Um, but at first I thought, so in the, initial like sequence when you had Everett Ross like being chased through the streets um I thought he died and I was like okay why did I not feel anything like I felt absolutely nothing I was like I had no connection to this character um (laughs) but I don't think he's dead but is he a scroll I mean that's the thing like they revealed that he was a scroll and my and to your point like you made a perfect point like the loss of Everett Ross and whether scroll or real or whatever didn't have the impact it did because for the most part, he was only featured in the black Panther movies. Like at least with, you know, agent Coulson in the beginning of the, um, Marvel's MCU, he showed up in, um, Iron Man. He showed up in like Thor near the end, showed up in Captain America at the end. We saw him bits and runs. And then, you know, of course we, we got to get to know him a bit before, like, he died and then popped back up Agent of Seals. With Everett Ross, we only saw him twice. We have no real attachment to him at all. You know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> that was interesting. Um, but then, I, the other part that I found interesting was like, I guess Amelia Clark's character is playing Ben Mendelsohn's daughter and she is in like the Rebel Force. Yeah. But, like, I guess she's coming around now. I don't know. I still don't trust her fully. I'm not really sure. Like, I feel like she understands to a certain degree, like, the people that she's working for has harmed her personally. But maybe the mission of, like, actually having Earth be the scroll's new home might take precedent. I don't know. I like that she's a little bit gray. I'm not really sure, like, where she stands. Um, I'm very happy to see her back on, like, in something like in something else because yeah. I miss seeing her face. Yeah. Um, and she's gotten so much better as an actor. Um, 
like if you watch like season one and two of Game of Thrones, you're like, oh, okay, this is a little rough. So like, I'm glad that she's doing a lot better now <laughs> in this role. And I'm actually really excited to see where she goes. Cause I think again, listening to people theorize on the internet, I think what they're trying to do with her character is like maybe replace her um, or, or replace her with Ben Mendelsohn's character. Like she will become like very important later on, just like Kit Harrington's character will become very important later on in the Blade movies. I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if they ever start back them. production because yeah <laughs> Marshall was like yeah we going this script isn't good we going to stop production right now and fix this so yeah and i'm grateful for him for doing that um i think we'll all be thankful <laughs> but um yeah so i think they're trying to make her either um maybe a not if not a leader of the scrolls like a very important member of that team that will interact with the humans or they they might replace her as like the new eight like what Samuel L. Jackson is in this universe. I don't know. That's what I've heard on the internet. So, yeah, they're Maybe. like if if you're familiar with the comics, the person who kind of is like it's it's uh, both of them aren't Shield. Like Shield is more, I guess, planet side and like yes. Sword, which is a space station that she that Fury's now on. They have a different leader for that. Um, right. so I don't know how they're gonna if they're gonna go that direction. But in this conversation, I, I've realized whose death probably would have been more impactful than Everett Ross. And that would have probably been, um, uh, dang, what's her name again? Um, oh, his like number two, Fury's number two. She died, or yeah, no, she died, she yeah. Did. But I'm saying, had they revealed her as a scroll, oh, that would have probably been more impactful. Like, I was that's so when she died, um, I was thinking, um, dang, she's going to turn to a scroll because he didn't know she, she was probably on Talos' side and he didn't know that she was a scroll. And they were like, oh, no, she's a regular human. She's just dead now, which, you know, which is funny because knowing the actress, I, I don't forget her name. I used to watch How Be Your Brother all the time. So, Colby uh, Smolder, yeah. Like, and I find it funny because she did an interview saying uh, her experience on this project was probably one of the best she's had with Marvel or anything. So, I don't know. Maybe she pops back up again in the end maybe she's not actually dead dead but you know we never know and what you said about uh amelia clark she also did an interview where she said this is also her best experience on a set you know and we've you know her experience with game of thrones and at the time when game of thrones was coming up they didn't really have all the necessary things you know on set because like they mentioned like not just her, but also um Jason Moa mentioned sometimes they had no um uh thing. I don't want to get the name wrong, but a lot of sex scenes you see in movie there is an intimacy, intimacy coordinator. Yeah, they didn't yeah. have that on set. They didn't have anything prepared for her because and at that time when she was doing Game of Thrones, she was like twenty. She was a young actress. This is her first major role, and mm -hmm. she was just on set naked by herself. She didn't have any of any of those, and you know, and she didn't they were saying like Jason Moa like would get fed up with people and like threaten people like yo get her shit <laughs> you know and so for her to say this is like her best experience on set since then it says a lot of how shoddily run you know Game of Thrones was run as a production at that time yes and I might hmm, you're gonna talk about something later in the news that I I think that this story that you just mentioned is like a perfect 
example yeah. to bring up. So I'll wait until then to mention kind of my thoughts on that. But um, yeah, I'm really happy that she's a part of the MCU. I'm actually happy that like they just took like a bunch of Game of Thrones actors and threw them in the MCU. They're like, you'll fit fine here. And it's like, <laughs> true. So many of the Game of Thrones actors are in these movies and shows. It's really funny to me. But um, I'm kind now of hoping you, for... You mentioned it. <laughs> quite a lot of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So many of them. Yeah. So I'm kind of hoping that there'll be like an Amelia Clark, Kit Harrington, like a Danny and John crossover at some point. I know that and that's maybe like thinking too broadly, but I would like to see that. That'd yeah. be cool. Um, but to your point about Maria Hill... Yeah, I was. I heard someone say that they were not like they didn't care about her death, to put it in like <laughs> to wrap up basically their thoughts. But I was like, yeah, this is kind of huge because she's been there since like what the first Avengers movie, if if not before that, if I'm not mistaken, if I if I can't remember exactly where she shows up initially in these series of films but i know i definitely know that she was in the first avengers movie she was and so that would be great so it was crazy that when she died like i was just like whoa like that is insane like i did not see that coming i saw someone else die like i mean i i saw maybe is it telos is that the name of his character telos i don't he didn't die he didn't die this no 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 i was asking if that was the name of his character i was just calling him ben mendelson oh talos no he didn't die no talos yeah. yeah no i was saying i could have seen that happen more like yeah. but i was not seeing her death coming and people are saying like she's not really dead and maybe that's true maybe she's still alive maybe she'll appear but when you watch the credits she's listed as a guest star like she's not listed in the cast you know, in the opening titles. So I don't know. I feel yeah. I would, that'd be crazy. Like if she really is like no longer a part of this. I mean, <laughs> like, so that that's what kind of goes back to her interview saying this is her best experience on set. Like we just saw you die. So clearly yeah. you're not dead, especially considering Hollywood rule. Number one is if you don't see a body, they're not dead. You know, or you don't well, see you saw her body. She or, she yeah, was well, bleeding out. It's but. it's a it's a 50-50. Either you see the body or you see a casket. You gotta have you it's it's weird. Hollywood rules when it comes to death in movies is kind of always weird. But yeah. Mm. So So yeah, that was crazy. Um but yeah, I'm interested to see what they're gonna do with um Kingsley's character. Like because he he very much seems like he is like about that life. Like he really was like, I I'm just going to blow it up yeah. <laughs> and I don't care. Like, so he's ruthless. Um, I heard someone say that they think that the real villain is Olivia Coleman's character. And that like, she will like be the one who's truly orchestrating all this. But considering that her motivations and the school's motivations are so separate, I don't know if that's true. Like, I don't think that she's like the mastermind in terms of like, how all this is going to play out. Apparently yeah. she's like the UK version of Val's character. Um, over here, I, I guess she's in charge of what the CIA or something. I don't know. Um, but I don't think she's like doing that. I do think she's also about that life and she will murder all of them. I, I believe that. Um, and also so lovely to see Olivia Coleman here. Like 
love her. That is my queen. Yeah. So the cast literally. and performances were, yeah, literally. <laughs> the cast and the performances were absolutely giving. So that hooked me. Like, even though the dialogue is still marvelous and we can't, we can't get away from that, I do think that they are taking this in a very, like, dark like way path I think we're going down a little it's still like it's gonna get rough and they're not gonna pull punches in terms of like who dies but then also if, if it's like well these people are scrolls it's a little less impactful because it's just like well you're not the real person so like I will say I do love when Marvel goes this espionage route it kind of does like they're like this whole cin- cinematic universe is mostly saying the heroes exist in our world as it is present day. You know, like comic book version of Tony Stark was kind of on a sliding scale where originally it was the Vietnam War, and then you know as comic books evolved, it's become like Gulf War, Desert Storm, you know that kind of thing. Whereas you know MCU is kind of saying Tony Stark, you know Iraq Iraq invasion, that's where it kind of starts for him. Um, mm-hmm. I do love how they integrate the modern political climate a bit into the world, into the story. I um, mean, you know, Nick Fury makes countless, him and Olivia Coleman make countless re- references to Cold War and stuff like that. And the whole scroll plan is to plant a bunch of dirty bombs, which is an actual thing like terrorist organizations have attempted to do with, with nuclear stockpiles that have gone missing for decades, you know, and say we're going to pit the U.S. and... um. Russia against each other, which is very much what is happening t- right now in the world today with the issue with Ukraine. Um, and not only that, their plan is mutually assured destruction between the U.S. and Russia, because I don't know if anybody actually paid attention to it, but they said the scrolls can actually survive in the radiation fallout because they're actually living in an old, like nuclear, a former Soviet nuclear base is their headquarters. Yeah. So they, so they can say, yeah, we're going to let you guys bomb each other and destroy each other because guess what? We can survive like the nuclear fall. Our natural, you know, plants and crops from our planet will thrive in that nuclear environment. And I, that's that's really like these dudes are going like all the way in. And, and it reminds me a bit like what you said with um, Winter Soldier, uh, yeah, Falcon and Winter Soldier. Even though to me, Falcon and Winter Soldier skewed a little bit more buddy cop. But they still retained that um, espionage esque real world um, problem of you know with the with the flag smashers group of people being um, migrants and um, immigrants crossing borders. So I, I do prefer when Marvel goes like a little bit into the real world a bit. It really grounds them the movies a lot more, and it's sad they only do it with the shows now, which sucks. Yeah. Yeah, and it's true, like, it couldn't be, like, more poignant, <laughs> the timing of this show, because of the war in Ukraine and everything that's happening with Russia. Like, it it feels, and I guess that's what kind of, I think will, what, what will be this show's, um, not saving grace, because it is good, but, like, definitely one of its high points is that it does feel so... Um, close to reality in that way, where it's like, even though this is about like scrolls and these are fictional characters, the setting of the war, of the setting of like what the show is, and 
I guess the thought processes and like how they're trying to deal with these issues very much folds right back to like how we're dealing with them right now. Um, trying not to have like an us versus them type of mentality and seeing like what is the best way to help people um, and also protect ourselves. So yeah, very, very poignant, I think. Yeah. Like my only issue though at Marvel is is they they do Captain Marvel, then they do the Marvels. Brie Larson's only been really seen in like one movie, let's be honest. Like being shown five minutes in um was Endgame is not really what I call a, a scene or whatever a performance. And then I turn on TV and I can see Brie Larson do Nissan commercials. Like I really wish they had integrated her character more into the MCU as a whole with all these projects. Like have her pop up in like She Hulk or whatever, you know. Have her like like I do think it probably would have been better in this movie if she shows up because it is an honest question because you know they meet in like the uh, what early nineties late eighties they meet the scrolls and she says yeah I'll help you find a planet and she goes off to space and then comes back in Infinity War and is like yeah there are other planets more than Earth that have that need trouble and I was like the whole time you've been in space fighting who whoever the crap you could you still ain't find these people a planet it's been like thirty years lady. Well, what you been doing? <laughs> like, what? Like, come on! And especially in that absence during during the whole Thanos snap, a lot of planets got like half the people on there. You could have could have said, "Hey, this planet only got half people. We could take half the scrolls there and you know cohabitate or whatever." But yeah, I think that her not being involved in these projects per se, especially dealing with the scr uh, scrolls since they were introduced with her movie, is kind of doesn't make any sense. So yeah, I agree. I feel like I, I think it's interesting. I don't know what they were planning to do with her character after her movie came out initially. Like maybe I don't know what they're they were thinking. Like, did they think it was not gonna do well or something? So they didn't make any more plans to put her in more things. I'm not sure. But I mean, personally, like I can't even tell you like what happened in Captain Marvel, really. Yeah, like I I don't even remember like it. Carol Danvers as a character does not is not compelling to me, um, which is weird because Brie Larson is a great actress. So I don't understand like how I I don't know why that didn't translate into the character. But I was just like okay, like Lashana Lynch's character was more interesting to me than like <laughs> than her. But what they're doing is the Marvel that's coming out later this year where they're connecting her character mrs marvel and also the young woman who was in wandavision they're like teaming up to do something and i think nick fury is involved in that in some way so maybe that will be a continuation of this it would make sense for her to pop up in the show though because they are naming her like <laughs> in in the script like she's being named as a person of like where have you been why haven't you done anything along with nick fury which are valid questions. Like, I don't know. I feel like the scrolls are a bit extreme in how they're choosing to do things, but they got a point. Like, it's been so long. Like, why haven't y'all done anything? It's so weird. Like, it seems like such a, a, a misstep in the terms of, like, the people, the higher-ups of Marvel who are planning these things out. Yeah, I mean, but I think that's also makes it so relatable in the real world sense, because I like I forgot who 
I heard, I think I heard this quote in like elementary school, middle school, and it's, it's stuck with me forever. Because for me, like our generation is has seen the U.S. maintain international conflict almost their whole lives, and I think somebody said, um, "One man's uh, terrorist is like another another man's freedom fighter," and obviously it, it makes sense. Like if like I know to people in foreign countries when the U.S. comes over there. To them, it looks like you're destroying and terrorizing my country. You're now enemy. To us, soldiers, these soldiers look... And I, and I have family in the armed services. I have friends, people I'm close to. To us, it's like, oh, you're a hero. But you have to be honest. Like, If you look at it from their side, somebody's invading their country and destroying them. Like, so, and then, so I understand how the scrolls would feel and operate. Especially also, I look at it as an extension of the whole... This piggybacks off of um Captain Marvel, not Captain Mark, Winter Soldier and Falcon, the whole civil rights issue of uh, you have a displaced people. Like this story reminds me very much of uh the conflict between like Palestine and Israel, where one group is oppressed and one group is not, and they just want to find their place. So, or even civil rights movement, you know, black people, you know, for time we were oppressed, we just want we want to find our own place, and that creates fiction. And like a lot of times, like I think. I don't want to misquote him, but there is also another quote where it's like violence and like riot is basically the voice of the um the unheard. I'm probably misquoting it. I think it's an MLK quote. I'm probably misquoting it. I'll probably fix it in post and for use this segment in on YouTube. I'll probably put the correct post there, quote there. But it makes sense. After years and years of be your opinions and your voice not being heard, it turns to violence. And we see it very much the same way on the flip side. January 6th, we had all these crazy white people who assumed they weren't unheard try to storm the capital. So it plays both ways. Like, your end result of, you know, your voice not being heard is to react in a violent matter. Consequences be damned. So. Yeah. Very. Yeah. And you're right. Very relatable to what's happening yeah. right now. So I have very positive feelings about this show. I feel like not only because it's very relevant to what's going on right now, but also because like, it seems like it has a very strong focus of like what it's trying to say and what it's trying to do. And I like that it's kind of its own thing. It's not really tied up into the whole phase five King, blah, blah, blah. So I'm more interested in seeing like what this is going to do. No multiverse business. Like it's just pretty straightforward. And I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah. I'm on board. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, can't can't wait. Only only downside to this show has been the news and knowledge of the fact that um the issue with the title sequence was created using AI, which once mm. again is a key key issue that's been happening with the writer strike. And I don't we I don't we tweeted it out earlier in the week, but it's funny um that if people weren't paying attention, that when the writer strike started, FX companies and groups in Hollywood were planning on forming unions because I don't know if a lot of people are aware of how a lot of these FX companies, VFX companies get their contracts for these movies. It's usually the lowest bid wins. So you got these billion at this point almost every movie except for, you know, Flash has made over a billion dollars. You know, so but then you shortchange the FX studios and the writers and all that. So to hear that this Marvel this Disney project, let's be honest, Disney is a house of animation. 
decides to go and use AI for the title sequence. And their excuse was, oh, we wanted to feel surreal and unnatural and make you feel weird. And to match the theme of the show is kind of horseshit because there are plenty of animators who can do that style perfectly. Probably most likely in-house with Disney because they have a connection with um, Industrial Light and Magic, which does some of their stuff on the Star Wars side and stuff. So there's like no excuse for that right there. Yeah, well, and it looked ugly. Like it did. I mean, it, so. their excuses are supposed to look ugly, but the fact that it, they used AI was the issue. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of the AI situation with this. I don't know because I don't know how much that was being used before in other properties, like before the strike happened, like before this was like a real issue that was being debated. I don't know if they were already using it in other things. I'm not sure. So this is like a regular practice and it's just being highlighted now because this is one of the main issues that are, that the writers and actors and other people are debating. Then um, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of stupid too, to admit it. Like, Hey, there's a writer's strike going on and, and then there's a, there's strikes in Hollywood across Hollywood and the issues of use of AI. Yeah. We're going to admit we use AI on this project, but that's, not very forward thinking whoever is in charge of your pr to ever you know <laughs> let that slip so yeah yeah um any final thoughts on what you think of the show right now i think it's good and i can't wait to keep watching <laughs> same same I, I like watching old man uh sam jackson so you want to see how that whole that thing goes and how it continues. But moving on from Marvel, you know, Disney Plus moves, moving on to more box office and TV update stuff. Of of course, the runaway hit that is Spider-Man all across the Spider-Verse. Uh they've kind of had the same issues a bit with AI. I know you you want to talk about it later, so I'm not gonna talk about that. I'll let you deal with it. Um, but they're back at number one in the box office. Um, so, uh, they jumped the flash, uh, <laughs> they jumped a lot of movies in the box office. Once again, this past, uh, weekend, uh, to claim a fourth, the number one spot for the fourth weekend. Um, I know we talked about box office returns, especially on the Marvel slash Disney side, kind of averaging about, uh, I guess 40% after week one. Um, the Flash kind of had the biggest drop, um, like across the board, especially considering this is the last movie in what is supposed to be the DC um cinematic universe. Um, it dropped seventy two percent in the second week end, which is really bad considering even Marvel, even as bad as a lot of other Marvel movies, they were able able to scream like forty percent and still be fine, but. This goes on to like the, the horrible returns this movie's had from day one. Um, the Flash only did about fifty-five billion its opening weekend, and then only made fifteen point three million in the second weekend. So, yeah, um, that's bad. Um, don't know how this might be the death kill it is for the DC Cinematic Universe. Um, 
hope and prayers are riding, especially if you look at all the shit that's going on at um, Warner Brothers, which I will continue later on. Um, yeah, I think they're hoping and praying that, you know, James Gunn does magic with uh, Superman Legacy. Um, but once again, the movie's kind of, you know, Elemental also struggled as well. That's another Disney Pixar film. Um, and which only movie that kind of made back up, I guess unexpectedly, its earnings was uh, No Hard Feelings, which is the Jennifer Lawrence kind of weird rom-com movie. Um, I don't even know where to put it because Jennifer Lawrence is playing a grown woman and he's playing a teenage boy going off to college. So I don't want to put it in the rom-com category because that's still kind of weird. But yeah, those are the four or five movies that are dominating the box office, you know, varying degrees right now. Um, and the on the TV side, I know you want to piggyback off of mentioning about the, the issues or the perception of a show. Um, so, of course, the weekend's hit show, The Idol, it was originally scheduled for about, what, eight episodes? Am I correct? Or am Six I wrong? episodes. Six it episodes. It went down to five. It went down to five. And mm. for the last couple days, uh, the Parents Television Council has been in nonstop contacting HBO to cancel the idol, comparing it to torture porn and um, sexual abuse. I don't know how that's going to work out, knowing that the last episode of that show is, is what, July 2nd? Um, but their main criticism has been, as each episode has gone on, those uh, depictions have gotten worse and worse. Um, and the issue is also, if you think back to the early 90s or 2000, HBO kind of could get away with being more raunchy and whatnot, but now with the expansion of them being on a streaming platform, it's kind of open to everybody in your household, you know, before HBO, you're like, you, you pay for it, you could put a, your people in your house can watch it if you pay for it. Now, anybody can kind of watch it online no matter what, so, yeah. Yeah. I think it's very interesting that it shortened its um, season order um, and it hasn't, we don't know. Cause I think initially and everything around this story has been so messy, but basically it was supposed to be a limited series. And then it was confirmed or no, it was, it was rumored that they weren't going to get picked up for a second series which wouldn't make it a limited series anymore it would make it just like a regular series and then um hbo was like no we're not saying that we're not picking them back up for a second season we're not saying anything we're not giving any comment so either it was a limited series with six episodes that got cut down to five because maybe the viewership is dropping i'm assuming that probably might be one of the reasons or it was supposed to be a like multi-season um, show that didn't get picked up. And so, and no one's saying like what it was, whether it was limited, whether it was regular, nobody's giving a comment on it, um, which I find very interesting. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but in terms of like what the show actually is, right? I mean, HBO is known for, you know, it's known for prestige television, but it's also known for pushing the boundaries. Like that's what it was created for. You know, it was, you know, if you wanted to see some stuff, like you would go to HBO, you would pay for it. 
But now, like you said, because it's open to everyone because it's on streaming and they're mixing it with Discovery Channel. So it's like, it really could be for you, your kids. It, it could be for anyone. Anyone has access to it. Anybody could be watching this stuff. You know, I know that there were like 14, 15 year old kids who were watching Euphoria when they shouldn't have been watching that either. So like, it is true. I mean, I'm not going to say that the those folks don't have a point to be concerned. They do. But also, like, I just feel like it. that's HBO is kind of where this type of thing would be. Yeah. I'm not saying it's prestige television. I don't agree with that at all. I think it's not good. But I do think that, like, in terms of explicit content like that is where that would go so and also it's wrapping up next week there's no reason to really be up in arms about it however you can still rewatch it because it's still on the platform so i guess they still have a point in in terms of being upset but like you know it's for an older audience so i guess like whatever but (laughs) i guess the main problem is that like it's just bad bad and yeah and so i haven't watched the show i've been watching people react to it which is how i highly recommend it's so much more interesting that way because from what i'm hearing it's actually really boring even though it keeps getting talked about because of these scenes if you take these things out of it it's actually not like there isn't really much there so you can waste an hour or however long it it is to watch that show or you can just watch a youtuber talk about it it's much more interesting and fun but (laughs) basically what they're saying is like yes like is is it over the top in terms of like the uh in terms of the way lily rose death is being depicted in it and the things that they're doing probably yeah but also not to be weird and i don't know this for a fact this is from what i've heard is that like this is stuff that people are probably watching on their own times on certain sites and stuff yeah so it probably isn't that shocking for those folks you know what i'm saying like this is probably something that you're that they're used to singing seeing so like hmm. but um i do think that in terms of like how she's being depicted whether or not it's actually a satire of, of you know abuse in the music industry or if it's actually depicting that straight out no one really knows i think that's the big debate about the show it's like are they making a comment on it or are they making fun of it yeah. that's the main issue because if you're if you're trying to satirize it there is aspects of it that are kind of funny like it's not not the abuse part obviously but like certain things that happen in the show is just like that is funny because it's so dumb but i think the sexual stuff the violence of it the willingness to be a part of that that is no one can really put their finger on like whether it's supposed to be like that or if they're actually making fun of it and i think that when it comes to those type of things i don't think you i don't i don't think you can not take it seriously at that point because it is like there is a violence to it, you know, someone is being choked, someone is being this or that. Like, you know, it's not like, I don't know. It's, I guess it's complicated. I'm not really sure. My whole feeling about like what this show is, I have no idea. 
I feel like we're all being like gaslit into thinking that it's one thing <laughs> and it probably isn't that thing. And so because like no one has any real answers to what this thing actually is other than that, other than that it just exists on the internet. Like, I don't know how to feel about it. So I can't make a comment on it other than saying when it comes to the intimacy coordinator stuff that I was talking about earlier, basically in the first episode, Lily Rose Depp wants to show all of her boobs in a photo shoot. And the intimacy coordinator is like, no, you can't do that because it's not in the contract. And she was like, well, it's my body. I can do what I want. And they're like, no, <laughs> legally, like you can't, we can't do this here. We would have to redo their contracts and stuff. And her team locks the intimacy coordinator in the bathroom and she takes the photos with her kids out. So I guess the intimacy coordinator is a villain in that scenario, but in terms of the show, like the show's perspective yeah. is that intimacy coordinator bad. That's what they're trying to say. Um, and again, it's, it's falling between that line of like, are you making fun of it or are you being serious? I don't know. So either way, I think that's really weird, especially because Sam Levinson has used intimacy coordinators on Euphoria. Like that's been a huge part. Like every actor who's had to be naked or do any sex scenes on that show has talked about how important that was for them to be able to do that. So like, what is he actually saying? Like, it doesn't make any sense. He doesn't make sense. Like he is always the issue. But <laughs> when you were talking about Amelia Clark, and this is one of the things that always gets me when actors do um, nudity mm -hmm. in shows and sex scenes to a, to a certain degree. But you don't have to be nude to do sex scenes. So if you're doing nudity and also doing sex scenes, their comments are always like, either I didn't have a good experience or I had a good experience, but when I was out in public or whatever, someone was commenting on my body, right? which is weird because you're not acting like, so this is just you, right? And someone's talking about how they saw your dick or how they like your tits like that. People will come up to you and say stuff like that because you've shown that on screen. Is that right? Obviously no. But again, you don't have any control on how it's perceived once you do it. Like people could take anything out of context. But in Amelia Clark's point of view, I know she gave an interview when she talked about this and she said like, you know, people were asking me to do other roles, which involved nudity. And I didn't want to do that because I did it for that role because I felt like it was necessary, but it wasn't, I'm not the, the girl to go to, if you want someone to be naked on screen, like that's not what I want to be perceived as, as an yeah. actor. And her experience is terrible, was terrible. Like, first of all, why did Jason Momoa need to say anything to y'all? Like, it's your job to protect this young actor. This is their first role on a huge network television show. Like y'all should have stepped up and been like, someone should have had a robe for her somewhere. Like she should have never just been out there while cameras were not rolling naked. There's no reason that should have ever happened. So the fact that she had that experience to me, it's just so ex exploitative of the producers and the directors and the networks who ask young actors because it's always very young actors like when this is like their very first role on television it's always that yeah. Sydney Swinney same deal any other show where it's like young people being on screen naked it's like this is like their first 
thing. And it's always a big show. So like, what do you think that they're going to say? No, I'm going to do it. Like, this is their opportunity. And I feel like people are taking advantage of these young actors and being like, no, 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 it's fine. We'll have people on set. Like, this is empowering. And, you know, when you're 20, 21, 22, like, you feel like you know what's going on and you got things under control. But again, hearkening back to what I was saying um, earlier, you have no control over how it's received. So even if you feel empowered while you're doing the scene and you feel safe doing the scene, once you step off that set and it's out in the world, anyone can say anything to you. And also studios can perceive you as a certain type of way and what might only offer you certain kinds of roles, which limits you as an actor. So it's like, I don't know, the, the pro and the con, like they, they're just, to me, the cons outweigh the pros in terms of doing scenes like that because it's just like, it's so out of your hands in a lot of cases. And you hope that people on set are smart enough to hire intimacy coordinators, smart enough to not have what happened to Amelia Clark happen to anyone else. Like, you know, not you just Amelia that Clark. Like, I and think, it's not just her. Yeah, There's like, many. Brooke Shields is now, as an adult, as like a mother with two daughters, is mm. slowly understanding and re- realizing what happened to her at a young age, not even just at a young age, repeatedly throughout her career as an actress. Yeah. Like, that fear that Amelia Clark had of being the, the actress who does nude scenes, that's what happened to Brooke Shields for a large part yes. of her career. She was the actress who did nude scenes. Yeah. And when I was watching her documentary, it's funny that she was having a conversation with her daughters about it. And she still was trying to like unravel if it was actually bad or not. Like that's what's crazy. It's like, it took her how many years to figure out that mm, that might've not been okay. And it was still, and she's still like unpicking what happened to her back when she was like, not even an adult because she wasn't like, an adult. She was like 17 in Blue Lagoon. So she was doing nudity when she was younger than that. Yeah, before that. Yeah, before that. Yeah. Which is outrageous. Like I couldn't even imagine that happening now. I it wouldn't happen now. But like the fact that that happened at all is insanity to me. Like that is so crazy that she was a literal child and they were and her photos were like I think someone actually leaked her photos. She had to go to court for that. Someone like took her photos and was like putting it in a magazine of her naked as a literal child. Like, anyways, the industry is so exploitative of young women. I don't think that the idol is helping it in any way. I don't think that this is any type of liberation. I'm sure Lily Rose is fine with it. She seems like she doesn't care. It's not even about her at this point. It's more about like every other actress. like who may or may not have to do something like this, not even girls, but guys too, like transgender doesn't matter. Like y'all need to stop letting, not even y'all just like the, the industry needs to stop putting young people in this position and not really giving them a choice. And Lily Rose, honestly, she's playing a hyper parody of a pop star, but she essentially, if you, Look at it honestly on the show. She is a victim of that very same issue because she's a young actress. This is her first major role as well. So, yeah. Levinson and everybody else who make are making these decisions are just like using her as a tool for whatever they feel like 
doing. And then it's like, that's what's so gross about it. Cause it's like the deception of like, this is your choice. Like you're, you're choosing to do this and it's fine. And, and it's funny that the one doing the most talking about what the show isn't is the person not being depicted in such views, which is the weekend. He's right. been very competitive with the press and critics and the general public on the reaction to the show. But the mm-hmm. person who essentially is the person being put into these scenes isn't saying anything. And I think that's kind of very telling, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, anyways, that was a rant. <laughs> yeah, that was a rant. That was a rant. Sorry. Was... <laughs> um, Sorry. Yeah. Um, continuing the whole issues, you piggybacking, of course. Uh, HBO is, I think it's a part of, it is part of Warner Brothers Discovery. Um, the ongoing mm-hmm. issues that that company, that company is a hellfire, bro. Like, I think I could probably run that company better than, uh, David Zask. But, um, there are currently discussions that they're willing to sell over large swaths of their catalog for, uh, Almost slightly less than half, but even less than half is still a large portion of that catalog uh, for around $500 million. Um, And that includes, you know, projects like Purple Rain, Avita, Sweeney Todd, Rent, a lot of the earlier Batman movies. Of course, movie we watched the day, Casablanca, you know. And for me, it's rough because, like, if you look at the news, they've been letting go large swaths of um turner classic movies, movies tcm and it's not just me who tcm was kind of it's like my introduction to how i like i could say i remember watching like free really and shit like in the movie theaters as a kid but my love of actual cinema and stuff like that has come from watching you know these classic movies with my mom and it's not just me but you've had actors you know ryan reynolds has come out and talked about how important that was for him you've had Spielberg and Kubrick, you have all these other directors getting together and having to write a letter to uh, David Zass saying how important Turner Classic Movies is to uh, film history, to just go back to referencing, you know, um, the idol, but to pimp it out in that manner, especially Warner Brothers is home to like one of the largest film libraries. I think in the industry is really, really sad, especially you're selling it just for 500 million, 500 million with the price of inflation. A lot of these movies grossed over that. So that is just, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that. So. Yeah, really the decisions being made. (laughs) Oh Lord. (laughs) Oh Lord. A a monkey throwing poop in the zoo could make better decisions (laughs) over than this guy. I will. I don't know. So, if you got the biggest directors in Hollywood saying what you're doing is wrong, the odds of anyone wanting to direct for Warner Bros. on any project in the coming years is not looking good. They're going to be scrimping and looking for like unknown first time directors for a lot of the project they want to do if if this happens. So, yeah, I can't believe that people are still making movies with them. Like. Not even like the bigger movies, just like regular movies. I'm like, yeah. why? What? Okay. Anyway, on to happy news. Angela Bass is finally getting her Oscar, and I mm-hmm. couldn't be more happy. 
Um, so Angela Bassett, Mel Brooks, and Kara Littleton are tapped for honorary awards, as well as Michelle Satter for the Her Shot. I think that's an environmental award. Uh, yeah. So the Governor's Award basically um, gives honorary Oscars out to folks who, even if they have won an Oscar, it's just like an, um, a recognition of the work that they've contributed to this industry. And in a statement, um, it's Janet Yang, who I think is the Academy president, said that across her decades-long career, Angela Bassett has continued to deliver transcendent performances that sets new standards in acting. Um, and this is very important for a number of reasons, but especially after the massive snub that happened this year earlier at the Oscars. Yeah. Where Angela Bassett was primed to win her first Academy Award, and then it didn't go to her for reasons I don't understand. Um, <laughs> it feels very um, fulfilling that she will at least get an Oscar in her lifetime, so before she's gone, you know, for the work that she's done, because she definitely deserves it. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Especially, I think this is also considering this is what the 30th anniversary of what's love got to do with it. You know, mm -hmm. we also just had the passing of Tina Turner. So it's a really impactful moment. But I do feel like a lot of these honorary awards for lifetime achievement. Yeah, I understand Sam Jackson kind of lifetime achievement makes sense for the amount of movies he has done. He, he hasn't really been like the actor, like, oh, man, Sam Jackson, that role in that movie, you know, really took your breath away. But Tina Turner, for a large portion of her career, in her movie, she's the person. Like, she very captivating. And I feel like her getting this award is kind of like the Oscars saying, you know what? We fucked up last year, and we're trying to fix that problem. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I think that's exactly what it is. I think it's also because, like, you know, how I, I think we went over this during the Oscars of how votes are counted, how people are able to vote in these things. A lot of the times they're not seeing the movies and they're just voting for the people that they know. So um, I think the Academy though, as an organization recognized that she was deserving of this award and didn't get it. So I think this was a step up on their part to just try to mull that over that mistake and just be like, no, 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 you didn't see anything. It's fine. Like she's getting one. Yeah. So yeah, I'm happy about that. It's, it's it's especially egregious considering in a lot of the the promotional material for that movie, a lot more of the cast was seen in a lot of the promotional material for Black Panther: Wakanda Forever. Like everybody was seen there, but in you know everything everywhere at once, it was mostly just you know the three leads and Jamie Lee Curtis is not mentioned until you find out she's in the movie. So that mm -hmm. that kind of like. I think I think her win was more so for how amazingly well that movie was. They just gave everybody in that cast an award, even though I will die on this hill. Like Jamie Lee Curtis, as much as a long career she had, she's Hollywood's stream scream queen. You know, following the legacy her mother left, she did not deserve to win that award. So, yep, <laughs> yep, um. So I know earlier today, or earlier, well, I was saying today, <laughs> earlier on this recording, on um, this episode, I did speak about, you know, 
the success that Across the Spider-Verse has been having, and we spoke a bit about AI and its use in film and issues with studios and strikes and whatnot. Um, for all the praise and adulation and success that Across the Spider-Verse has been getting, um, a lot of interviews with a lot of former animators uh, say they had a, a lot of delays and there was an endless stream of edit requests and the movie turned out to be production hell. Um, I'm shocked by that revelation considering I think before the, if it got pushed back a year before mm-hmm. its release date. So I, I was not aware that I assumed that it pushed back, you know, we eased the production cycle a bit, you know, to give animators more time. So not, you know, in the animation crunch, for everything, but apparently that did not change anything. They were still forcing animators to do the crunch work, even with the extra year they had. Um, uh, and a lot of these animators say that kind of behavior is not sustainable. Um, not sure how the animation union work union works. They are one of those issues where I'm not sure if they have the union where they're able to strike. Like it's a weird, do. yeah, it's a weird thing. They don't with have an in- yeah, because. At least with all the other departments, you kind of cross and go back and forth. Whereas animators, much like writers, are on like contractual kind of things. And it's also a lot of them work for different companies. Like Disney guys work on Disney projects, Nickelodeon people work on Nickelodeon, and so on and so forth. Um, so it's, I think it's harder for them to coordinate due to companies kind of doing that. I'm not sure I'm not an animator. I might be wrong. Um and this revelation has come out, and so in due to that, you know, the behind I think the team announced for Beyond the Spider Verse, which is the part two for Across, they've announced that they're pushing back that movie back a year, um, because it was not good news for fans to hear from animators on this project. Because a lot of these animators, if you're on Twitter, social media, they've been sharing all their like their work for the project, and some of them have mentioned the the crunch time rush for work. And it's not good where, hey, people are complaining about your production practice and your only way to, you know, handle PR is to say, yeah, we fucked up. We're going to push up, push back the next movie another year. You know, it's good that they realize they fucked up, but it shouldn't have taken negative PR for them to do that. So, yeah. And they weren't even trying to be that forthcoming with their apology. Um, So, Amy Pascal, who is a, you know, very famous producer for Sony, was basically just like, well, this is how movies get made. So welcome to the movie business. Like, not even acknowledging the fact that these people are working like, what, 70 plus hours a week. And I watched an entire video about this from a creator about like what actually went down (laughs) during this entire situation. And basically, they didn't have a story together. And so they didn't have a story to hand off to the animators to start animating until like very last minute. And then the directors, the producers were like very quick about like, we need these changes made, blah, blah, blah. Like how it is with the VFX and CGI and all that stuff, those same departments that we've talked about before, where it's like the animators would have a complete work, you know, complete, you know, uh, animation completed. And then the producers were like, well, we want all these changes done and we still are going to commit to this release date. So it just, it's really terrible. When I heard this, I was really sad because Across the Spider-Verse was phenomenal. 
and yeah. still was into the Spider-Verse as well. And I think because the movies have turned out so well, there's a the ends justifying the means type of mentality that's going on over there. So maybe they think, well, the product is still good, so it's fine to like work people this hard and it's really not okay. Those that's not those aren't good working conditions for anyone. So I think the dismissiveness of Amy Pascal and the rest of Sony of like, mm, well, this is just what it is and or we're going to push it back another year just to like you know, quell the noise because it's doing well in the box office. Um it's just it just speaks to a larger issue in Hollywood where like no one cares about the people who are actually like creating these stories. Like they treat them off like they treat them like garbage really. And the thing is like they have got paid for their overtime, but still like if you're working those many hours, like you don't have a life. I, <laughs> like I, you doing this is the only thing that you're doing. You want the option to do overtime. You don't want to be forced to do overtime. Um Yeah. And I think the issue, one of the key issues that they said the issue, like you mentioned that a script wasn't really made. And they said the part, the key issue with the animation was there wasn't even a storyboard made for the movie. Mm. So they're they're doing all this like ad hoc. Like as we come up with a scene, yeah. we're writing a script, you guys gotta animate the fuck out of this. Like, you know, it's real haphazard way. Oh, it's, it's only something I remember ever doing in college, you know? And we don't got an mm-hmm. idea, but we just gonna shoot the fuck out of this thing and whatever happens, happens. And then poor me, I'm stuck in the editing room like till 8 o'clock in the morning and trying to figure out what to do with the story. But yeah, it's you don't expect to hear like a Fortune 500 company, one of the biggest, you know, entertainment companies in Sony internationally because mm-hmm. people Sony is not just big here. Sony is an international media powerhouse globally. Um, you don't expect that behavior from them. Yeah, it's really disheartening. And apparently, like a hundred people quit, but they're they employed a thousand people, so I guess they got replaced. But yeah, that's just it's just so crappy to treat people like that, like your artists who genuinely. And I think it's different. Maybe people who aren't in the creative fields don't understand. Like when you're in a creator role like it is it feels very personal you feel very connected to the story that you're telling you want to do a good job so yeah that just that that hurt my feelings because i love that movie so much and i am so excited to see the next one but i really hope that the same working conditions aren't being employed for beyond the spider-verse i think it does make it complicated to like go watch it because you know like what was going on behind the scenes. So, I don't know. <laughs> but um, moving on to our last new segment. So, I feel like we're talking about the same kind of things, just in different, just in different slots. Okay, so <laughs> Comic-Con, um, which is the big, you know, festival that's supposed to be happening. Well, it is happening. It's still happening. However, um, Marvel, Netflix, Sony, and HBO Oh, also in, in Universal, they're not going to be doing panels at uh, the San Diego Comic-Con. So that's like so many um, uh, entertainment production companies that are not going to be showcasing any of their new work. And Comic-Con, I know when like I was young, Comic-Con was like a huge thing. Like 
especially since the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe kicked off, like every year you would be like tuned in to see like, okay, what are they going to drop? Are they going to drop a new trailer? Are we getting some behind the scenes footage? Like what's the new show that's coming out? Like it was like a huge thing. And I think because of COVID, it kind of, you know, it didn't do that well. Like most festivals didn't because you had because you know distance and virus and all those other things. Um, but it did come back last year in a big way. And I think because one, the writer strike has really like, listen, the writers are really bringing this industry to its knees. Like I will give them credit. Like they're really like shaking the shaking things up. They're shaking the tables. Like it's <laughs> they're doing their thing. Um, but also because the impending SAG after strike with the actors, if you if the if the union decides to go on strike you can't promote anything either, which is what I didn't know. I knew that yeah. they wouldn't be able to continue to film, but it's like, you can't do any promotion for anything. So from what I hear though, their talks are going very well. So it doesn't seem like they're going to strike, but um, the fact that the union voted to strike, if anything, if a deal was not reached, just goes to show you like, if the, if the talks stop being productive, they will strike and then there's no promotion at all. So if that happens, they're not doing it. And I, so I think there, these major studios are like, mm, we don't want to showcase our stuff. Plus there are issues with like Marvel and, you know, Kang and Jonathan majors. It's like, we don't really got anything to show you that doesn't involve him and, all, <laughs> and we don't know the outcome of his situation yet. So <laughs> I think a lot of these studios are dealing with a lot of issues because of the writer's strike and obviously maybe the impending actor strike as well. So they're not going to be showing up. Uh, I think Paramount will still be there to do their panels. Um, but you know, those, the, the, the list that I just gave, those are major, like Netflix did their tandem event. So like we yeah. kind of know what they're doing, but these other places, these other studios, like we don't, this is like the platform where they would be unraveling stuff or unveiling stuff. Like, were we going to get news about Fantastic Four? Like, mm. but now it's like, they're not showing up to the, to the situation. Comic-Con will still go on, but it won't be the same. So. I mean, I think for the production company side, it makes more sense because they were a competing against other movies going to comic-con and other other events and fighting for the main you kind of want that main prime time uh event hall c spot in the middle of the day which also all the press is going to pay attention to it yeah and so they're all even even not even every company but every movie within like you had like high profile like hey we're doing like four or five marvel movies like oh we want that spot no we want that spot like so and also, you also like you mentioned before with the writer strike for not writer strike but the sac sac Afro, the issue mm -hmm. of promotion. Like these actors are being paid to promote promotion. That's you know flying them out to California, chauffeur, hair, makeup, stylist, transportation to the venue from the venue, um, their teams and all that stuff. That's ends up getting pr pretty pricey after you're already paying the actor to make the appearance, um. So I think they realized, especially during COVID, where a lot of them started doing their own in-house ones, it's kind of kind of cheaper to, hey, you guys are basically all in California. 
Um, this is just come come here this time. Still pay the same. Still pay makeup all those people the same. But you're also not flying all those people to, you know, San Diego or driving people wherever, you know. So you could also they could also pre-record them when they're on set during the shoot for the movies if they have a schedule saying, you know, you can say some BS like they rocked it last year and then your movie turns to shit, but nobody cares. So it's cheaper. I I don't mind because it that's not what Comic Con originally was before. It was mm. like for me in Atlanta, going to like Dragon Con, you know, Mobile Con, those kind of con- conventions. It was the very same thing, just a bunch of nerdy people, really passionate about the things they they do and love, going there. Now, San Diego Comic Con, even New York Comic Con, um, they've both become really corporatized events. Yeah. So at least this in this way, it goes back to their roots. They're gonna be people who caught on to it late who don't think this is how comic-con should be or those conventions should be but almost every convention is kind of the same way so yeah hey so let's talk about what we watched over the week dale um i sat and watched a bear i know i had regrets deciding if i wanted to watch it um knowing the issues that a lot of the issues during season one I'm probably rolled over into season two for a lot of the writers because, you know, that was one of the key inputs, key, you know, breaking points that led for the writer strike is a lot of them being underpaid and then being nominated for awards. Um, but I did watch it though. It was very beautiful. Um, it's piggybacking off the previous season of everybody kind of grieving Mike's Mike's death, but this time everybody's still not grieving, but they're, um. Dealing with loss and loneliness, um, and finding your place. Like a uh, cousin is trying to figure out who he is, while everybody else is kind of playing to the restaurant, doing their own thing. Um, of course, uh, Lionel from um, Loiter Squad is kind of you know he's going to like Amsterdam doing pastries and learning and learning more and growing his skills. You see that um, when a chef's in the restaurant, she goes to culinary school. And she's learning skills, and she's proud of herself. Even Carmine, as toxic as he is, he's found love. You know, you know, everybody is growing beyond. They're still, they're growing and becoming happy. And I feel like it's a reflection of, um, not just loss, but how people deal with loneliness. Because at its core, beyond loss, all these characters were alone. Lionel's characters caring for his sick mom. Carmine is trying to rationalize his relationship with his brother. He feels alone. Um, I forgot the young lady's name. Um, the sous chef. I really forgot her name. Her name. I apologize for that. But she's still trying to be in the gap, the grasp of, you know, tempering down her expectations and learning how to dial it back. And she's still fighting because she's like, I want this. I'm going to do this no matter what. And not knowing how to, you know, sometimes you got to take a step back and manage your expectations or takes things slower. And Carmine kind of warns her, it's like, if you want this, this has to be the only thing you want. And he also says, and, and, and like, I talk about my love of Kiki's delivery service as a grown man, but it's honestly a reflection. Carmine says something I felt really impactful. Like, you know, we've talked about our work environment and stuff like that. Um, is the things you love becoming your careers and you losing passion for it. That I vibe with that 100% with Carmine. Um, so, but yeah, this this episode season is more about how 
beyond loss, how we deal with change and grow as people. So, yeah. Uh, Asteroid City, the new Wes Anderson movie, and I'm not going to say anything else. <laughs> about Why not? It. Why not? Because we'll talk about it later. Um, <laughs> so you're pulling on me. That's not fair. It, yeah. There is a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. I will say that. There's a lot to talk about. Once you watch it, there'll be a nice little discussion because... Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> That's um, what I was mm. mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. <laughs> it, it's interesting to see the discourse about this film. Some people really, really like it. Some people really don't. So I, I haven't seen any discourse about it. Only only online conversation I've had about it was um him being kind of miffed at how people assume his style is easily mimicked just by people on TikTok copying the visual elements without copying the storytelling aspect of his work. He was like, my work is not that, you know, repeatable, but that's the only commentary I've been hearing about the movie so far. Yeah. I follow a bunch of, like, film creators over on YouTube and on Letterboxd, so, like, Mm -hmm. I'm seeing the divide um, and I understand why there is a divide. That's all I'll say. I'll say I, I get it because uh, I think West is. I think there's an argument to make about his films really being style over substance. Mm, um, and also, and also being like a little too pretentious. I get where that's coming from because. There are certain things, and not, I'm not gonna specifically talk about this, but I'm talking about like in, all, in the films that I've seen of his, mm-hmm. which isn't which isn't all of them, but I've seen a good bunch at this point. And I think that there are definitely stories where he is, where the writing is amazing, and along and the stories are amazing along with the fact that visually it is pleasing. Um, and then you have other that. Are visually stunning um and you like and it's nice to be kind of caught up in the world of in his world where you know it's very deadpan it's funny it has a little bit of heart you know um but i think some i i don't know i think there are directors i think directors get to a certain point where you can kind of fall prey to your own um not even hype necessarily, but just your own myth. Like the Tarantino effect. Sure. Okay. Okay. I've never heard that before, but I agree. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think that there is a tendency to go that direction. So I'm interested to see how you'll feel about it. I'm really curious to see how you'll feel about it. I mean, yeah, he's been making movies since what? 90 bottle rock came out. What? 97 if I'm correct I'm, I'm probably wrong but if you're just realizing now that you know Wes's movies can be a bit pretentious where have you where, where have you been and I think that's also a recency thing because a lot more people have been paying attention to his work in the last 
yeah. six or so years who mm-hmm. were like, oh, we just assume it's these three movies. No, it's his whole his whole filmography is his style is a bit of ostentatious and pretentious, but it works for him. And I do think he's also fully aware of the pretentiousness of his projects, and he does it on purpose. Yeah, so, he has to be at this point, right? Yeah, he has to know. So, yeah, yeah. I love Wes Anderson's films, and I was, yeah, I was, I had feelings about this one. Um, yeah. Okay, that's we'll, all I'm gonna say. We'll, that's we'll, all I'm gonna say. We'll discuss it next week. I'll, I'll be, we'll I'll be able to watch it. Week. Yeah. <laughs> there's a little teaser for you come back next week all right (laughs) well that's it from us we hope that you're taking care of yourselves and having a great week make sure to check out all of our social media supports if you can and we'll see you guys in the next episode goodbye au revoir